Hello, and welcome back to a bonus episode of the In-Laws Podcast. I'm Brienne, and I will not be joined by Sophia today, because this is really an emergency recording of the podcast. Five law schools have decided to drop out of the US News and World Ranking System, and I really think we need to talk about what that means, why they did it, and how this is going to affect law students and pre-law students going forward. Before we start, I do want to give a little shout out to going and following me on TikTok and Instagram at Brianna Law. I asked you all on those platforms if you had any questions about this, and this episode is largely going to be based on the questions and concerns you guys raised. To start this off, I just want to go over the five schools that have decided to drop out because I think they give context for what this really means. The schools are Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Georgetown, and UC Berkeley. I do want to say that I did just spend all day with UC Berkeley's dean, Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. If you do not know who he is, you will after you take constitutional law. He is an absolute icon. Um, But I did not ask him about this because, obviously... I don't want to point out the obvious here, um, but these are all T14 schools, if you were wondering. And let's just go into what it means to, to drop out, because that's what people are saying. They're using the words drop out. I want to make it very clear. These schools will still be in the rankings. U.S. News and World is still going to rank them. What these schools are doing is they are choosing to not provide U.S. News their internal data. And this data is typically, that's been the norm, it's given to U.S. News for ranking purposes. So by not giving them this data, these schools are almost organizing a boycott of the rankings. However, that does not prevent U.S. News from being able to rank them, so they will still be included in the rankings, and we actually saw this with undergrad institutions a little while back with Columbia, and I will get into that in a little bit after I explain why these law schools are doing this. The purpose of this boycott is pretty simple. It's to show disagreement with the methodology U.S. News uses to rank law schools. And this has been a criticism for as far back as I can remember. I started looking at law schools as a sophomore in undergrad, so I was 19 years old and I'm 25 now, and criticisms have really only gotten more vocal over time. The full methodology that US News uses to rank these law schools is publicly available. It's on their website and I'm going to link to it in the description box in case you would like to read the full methodology but we're going to talk about a little bit of it. So if you put yourself in the mindset of a pre-law student trying to choose a law school, there are probably some things that you would think are really important. Employment rates, bar passage rates, how much debt you're going to accrue, and U.S. News takes all of those things into account. Before I give my own criticisms of this methodology, I want to talk about the explicit criticisms that these schools are making of the methodology. If I had to give you like a too long didn't read, the gist of this is that the US News ranking methodology 
is incentivizing law schools to not give a shit about poor people in like a variety of ways that probably isn't super surprising to you. For example, earlier I said that the average pre-law student is probably going to be interested in the average amount of debt that a student has when graduating from a certain law school, but in reality, that's not really getting at law schools offering great financial aid packages or having low tuition. What that really does is it incentivizes law schools to admit wealthy people because those wealthy people aren't taking out loans. So it looks better for the law schools to have someone whose parents are paying their tuition rather than people who have to take out loans. Obviously, this in turn hurts the legal profession because it's not the most capable people who are being admitted into law school, but the ones that can afford it without having to take out any loans. It is genuinely and truly really hurtful to the profession. I've talked about this a lot on my TikTok, and I think I've mentioned it on the pod before, but the socioeconomic status breakdown of top law schools has not changed since about the 1960s. A related criticism is how the methodology focuses on undergraduate GPA and LSAT scores of people admitted into the school and how this incentivizes law schools to give out merit-based scholarships rather than need-based financial aid. The LSAT score, or in fewer cases the GRE score, and the undergraduate GPA of people at the law school make up 20% of the law school's rating. So obviously, law schools want to get people who have LSAT scores, GRE scores, and GPAs that are going to raise their averages, meaning they want to offer scholarships to those people. They want to incentivize people to come to their school. This hurts poor folks in two ways. First, they're not getting need-based financial aid because it's all going to merit-based scholarships. And second, we know that wealthier people do tend to perform better on the LSAT and have higher GPAs for a variety of reasons. For example, wealthy people can afford to take the LSAT multiple times. They can afford to take an LSAT prep course for GPA. Wealthy people have their colleges paid for, have their expenses paid for, and don't have to work throughout undergrad. So they have more time to dedicate to their studies. So really, the people getting these merit-based scholarships are the people who need them less. The second criticism that these schools have of the methodology is how it favors private sector work over public interest work in assessing employment statistics. There are a lot of jobs that you can have when you graduate law school, but if you're going into the private sector, Your path kind of looks like taking the bar exam in July and then sometime in the fall, you start at a full-time permanent position at your firm. For public interest folks, that experience is very, very different and has way more variety to it. I really wouldn't expect anyone not in law school to know this, But a lot of the positions for public interest graduates are actually temporary. You can do a clerkship with a judge. You can do an honors program with the Department of Justice or the Department of Labor. There are even some like legal aid organizations that do clerkship type positions. 
um, and they're very much temporary. The issue comes with how this methodology treats these different types of jobs. So if you wanted to have full weight for a job that a graduate had, it had to be a full-time job that was not funded by the law school that lasted at least a year and either required a JD or was a JD advantage job. A side note here is that a lot of the higher ranked wealthier schools do help fund certain public interest positions for their graduates and US News is treating that as less than other jobs. If someone goes into a job that is not full-time, not long-term, or doesn't require bar passage, that's really disfavored. Um, as well as if they graduate and decide to get an advanced degree in something else. Like we all think that there are advantages to say a public interest attorney having a master's of social work, but US News doesn't really see the value in that. So basically these schools are like, hey, this methodology hurts one group of people the most, poor people who wanna go into public interest work. And obviously as someone who grew up in poverty, that was really interested in public interest work, I agree with them. I will always applaud a law school that is trying to make this field more accessible to poor students. And I will always applaud law schools that really push public interest work in a field that seems to only prioritize big law. That being said, I think that these schools are really cherry picking their criticisms because there are huge criticisms of the methodology that are left out of their statements because these other criticisms are of aspects of the methodology that really, really, really favor these schools. As a general note, everything that is considered in this methodology is impacted by a law school's endowment fund. So this methodology really favors schools like Yale that have huge endowments as opposed to schools like UNC, which are public schools that have pretty small endowments in comparison. For example, the average spending on instruction, library, and support services makes up 9% of a law school's ranking, and the library resources and operations alone make up 1%. So like, it's really, if you get into the nitty gritty, it's like, why are the hours that a law library is open really that important to US News, you know? Is it really just an indication of wealth? Is it really just an indication of what law school has the resources to pay 24-hour librarians? But the big one, the big one, whether we're talking about law schools or undergraduate universities, there is one very consistent criticism of the methodology, and that is it perpetuates this like cyclical elitism that we all need to leave in the past. So 40%, 40%, nearly half of a law school's rating is based on something US News calls the quality assessment. This is composed of two parts that they assert are expert opinions. The first part of this quality assessment is the peer assessment score, which makes up 25% of a law school's rating. To get this score, what US News does is it sends out surveys to like 
law school deans and chairs and the really important faculty at your school. And they ask these people to rate law schools on a scale of one to five. I know that sounds fake. It's not. That's really how it's calculated. One issue with this is that U.S. News reports that only 69% of recipients of these surveys actually respond. I personally would like to know more about who is not responding and why they aren't responding. But the bigger issue with that is that there are all of these deans and chairs and faculty members who are rating law schools when they have no idea what these law schools offer, right? Like, if you really think about it, what is someone who teaches at, like, a school in Colorado going to know about a school that was opened 15 years ago in South Carolina? So the people who are filling out these surveys, they don't actually know what these law schools are offering. They don't know what the law school's programs are. What they know is national reputations, and Yale has a national reputation. Harvard has a national reputation. I will call out my own school on this. UNC benefits from it. UNC has a national reputation as an elite institution. However, a lot of schools do not have national recognition. They might have some regional recognition and that might be fantastic. Like that regional recognition might be enough to have their employment statistics be incredible for graduates of that school. But someone in a different state who teaches at a different law school would probably not know any of that. Not to mention that the deans and faculty members of these law schools typically went to pretty elite law schools themselves. So like, they are not unbiased. But, you know, it gets worse because the second half of that quality assessment is the lawyers and judges assessment score. And that makes up 15% of a law school's overall rating. And you can imagine it's pretty similar to the peer assessment score. U.S. News sends out the survey that asks people to rank the law school one to five to hiring partners of law firms, practicing attorneys, and judges. I think similar criticisms can be made here. These attorneys and judges probably do not have much information about the law schools that they are ranking. It is probably based on their own elitism and the national reputation of elite schools. And I mean, why not point it out again? People who are hiring partners of law firms and people who are judges typically also went to elite schools themselves. So yeah, 40% of a law school's rating under this methodology is largely based on their reputation, um, which is not really based in reality at all. I really wish that the law schools who were boycotting the methodology would have pointed out the hypocrisy of this, because I think that really would have showed solidarity with lower ranked law schools, but they didn't. They didn't show that solidarity. They still want the parts of the methodology that are always going to favor them. And the show of solidarity would have been really crucial to this boycott because these five law schools alone are not really going to make a huge impact. It would require a lot of law schools boycotting for this to really make a difference and for U.S. News to change their methodology. When a school like Yale boycotts U.S. News ranking and takes the risk of being unranked or being ranked lower than they are used to, 
that is probably not going to affect much of their reputation or people wanting to go to that school or employers wanting to work with that school. It's really not going to have much of an impact on them at all. But for schools that are even slightly outside of the T14 status, this could have a serious impact on them. For example, I'm in law school, I pay attention to the rankings, I considered rankings when I chose my law school, but if you told me you went to the University of Florida, I would have no idea that that was ranked 21. That's a very well-ranked law school, but I would have no clue. It would mean nothing to me. Whether law schools like it or not, and whether it is good for the legal field or not, pre-law students are going to take rankings into consideration when applying to law schools. And opting out of US News would hurt the vast majority of law schools. And that's why I, I don't really think that a ton of law schools are going to follow in these five schools' footsteps. That's my opinion, I hope they prove me wrong. But when you're making this big stand about how these methodologies are wrong and they don't correctly assess law schools for what they offer students and how it really negatively impacts poor students, like you can't acknowledge the inherent elitism of the methodology. Come on, like it, it's so hypocritical. I also just want to mention that like, we aren't entirely sure that schools are providing accurate information to US News when they do provide information. And that is what I mentioned earlier. That's what happened with Columbia undergrad. So Columbia undergrad is obviously like a super elite school. I think it was ranked second on the US News rankings for undergrad schools. And then shit hit the fan. This math professor at Columbia was like, I really do not think that the information that Columbia is providing US News is accurate. And then over summer, Columbia was like, we're not going to be participating in this ranking anymore. We need to review our data, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, this doesn't stop US News from ranking them. It's just not providing the data. And then US News ranked Columbia undergrad 18th. If I'm going to put on my conspiracy theory hat, I guess it does make me question, like, are these schools genuinely making criticisms of the methodology? Or maybe are they just trying to cover up the fact that they've been inflating their numbers to U.S. news? I have absolutely no support for that. That's literally just a conspiracy theory. But I also think... I, th I think that a lot of schools probably are not reporting accurate numbers, and I don't think there needs to be malintent behind that. U.S. News asks law schools for a ton of statistics, and I think that you just very well could mess some shit up when reporting it. A different conspiracy that people have mentioned, and in my opinion is way more likely, is that these schools are doing this in anticipation of the Supreme Court stomping out affirmative action. Um, Harvard and UNC both had cases in front of the Supreme Court where students were challenging affirmative action given the oral arguments and given the makeup of the court. Schools can anticipate affirmative action no longer being a thing. 
It also kind of fits with Harvard being one of the leaders here. Um, Harvard has fallen a little bit in the U.S. news and world rankings, but I don't really think that's why they're like boycotting them. I think it's because they were involved in this litigation and they see this as a very real potential. Um, and it's really upsetting, <laughs> um, but these schools could be trying to change how the rankings work so that they can stay at the top of the rankings while improving their policies so that they can have a diverse student body if they can no longer have affirmative action. Maybe I'm just pessimistic. Like that is a definite possibility, but I don't see this radically changing how the methodology works because I don't think that enough law schools are willing to accept the downsides to this boycott. I think law schools are overwhelmingly selfish. Um, and we can even see that in the schools that are boycotting, right? They're selfish because they want to cherry pick the aspects of the methodology that they are opposed to. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the good news is that this is part of a larger trend that might show a brighter future for the legal field. And by that, I mean that this is happening really close in time to when the ABA has told law schools, like, you don't really need to be requiring the LSAT to admit students into school. And when the ABA made this move, you can go back and watch my TikTok. My exact criticism of it was that this was not going to do much because law schools were still incentivized to require the LSAT because it helped their US news ranking. Maybe these things happening around similar times shows that there is the energy to push for bigger change. I really hope that's the case, but I really, I, I don't let myself get too hopeful when it comes to this field. Now I'm just going to take a few minutes and transition into answering questions that I'm getting on my TikTok and Instagram about this. Um, the main one really is how is this going to affect the next cycle of applicants to law schools? And my answer is it probably will not affect them much. My prediction right now is that law schools outside of the T14 probably will not join in on this boycott. And if they don't, then US News will still have a ranking system that pre-law students will base where they apply to on. Um, yes, some schools might be ranked lower than you're used to seeing them because they didn't give information or they might not be included in the rankings. But like every pre-law student is going to know that Yale and Harvard are good law schools. I don't think it's going to impact their decisions that much. If law schools do start to boycott and more than just these extremely elite law schools decide to boycott, I think that applicants are not going to be able to use this bullshit ranking as a substitute for doing actual research on law schools. The upside to that is like, fuck the rankings, right? Like they're not accurate. It's a bad shortcut to use. You'll probably end up learning a lot about law schools that you would have never considered. If you knew their rankings, yada, 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 whatever. The downside is that that is a lot of work to do. Like, when I was applying to law schools, I'm not going to lie, I only applied to law schools that were T60. I was really only looking at them. But 
when I was looking at them, I went and looked at a ton of their individual programs. I considered the financial aid they would be able to give me specifically, like not average debt, but how I would fare at the law school. And that was a lot of work. And I really only did it for maybe like eight schools. But, you know, in reality, I think that um, pre-law students and applicants would just use the 2022 rankings. Like, if we're going to be honest, like, they're just going to use the year-old rankings. Not that much changes year to year. Something else I've been asked is, like, do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing? Do you think this is actually going to help people or is this just performative? And I think the answer to that is it's too soon to tell because I am very pessimistic for the reasons I've already stated. I don't think that this is going to create a huge change. So I'm, yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it's a little performative, honestly. That being said, um, 100% of the things that any law school does is performative. You know, it's all a game to them. And the last kind of question genre I got was, how is this going to change the fact that certain schools get you a better chance at certain law firms? And this is something that I do want to spend a few minutes on. Because like I said earlier, the elite schools with national name recognition are still going to be elite schools with national name recognition. You know, it's not really going to hurt them much. The last kind of genre of question I got is like, as it stands right now, certain schools get you a better chance at certain big law firms. Would this change that and how? And I want to take a few minutes to talk about this because I, I think people want to think that it would be positive and I'm not sure that it would be positive. So for context on this, I want to bring up the grading task force at my school. I think I mentioned it on a prior episode of the podcast, but my law school put together this task force that is essentially weighing the pros and cons of different models of grading in law school. So what we have right now is a curved GPA. They're also considering non-curved GPAs, um, numerical grading, which some law schools do, and delineated pass-fail, which is, I believe, what Harvard does. It's high pass, pass, low pass. And a criticism of this pass-fail model is that when you apply to a big law firm, say, the employer is using your GPA as a shortcut uh, for like your proficiency, your capabilities as a lawyer. And we know that that's incredibly flawed. Like we know that people's ability to be great lawyers is not dependent on their GPA, but we also know that employers have historically always made this jump. So I think in a perfect world, we'd take GPA, we'd make it pass fail, there'd be no GPA on your resume. And employers instead would look at your skills and your writing and your research and all of these qualities that are really going to be important to you as an attorney and make their hiring decisions based off of those things. The thing is, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a really shitty world where people, especially people who are high ranked in the legal field, have a lot of prejudices. So there's this worry that if employers don't have the GPA to use as a shortcut, 
they're going to start using their prejudices as a shortcut. They're going to focus even more on the elitism of the school that you came from. Did you go to the same school as them? Are you white? Are you a man? Do you talk with an accent? Things like that, that we really don't want them focusing on. And I know you're like, Brian, what the fuck does this have to do with the US news rankings? I think that if schools didn't have a ranking attached to them, we'd see a version of this. Employers, instead of using your school ranking as a shortcut, would use even shittier things. Like if you went to the same law schools as them, if you know attorneys in the firm, who your parents are. I really think that if there isn't a number there, people are still shitty and will still rely on shitty things, unfortunately. And you know, these five schools, they don't want the rankings to go out the window. They still want there to be rankings. They just want the methodology to allow them to do what they want to do. And as I mentioned earlier, what they want to do is great. It's good for the legal field. But like, they just want that flexibility to do what they want to do and still be at the tippy top of the rankings, which is why they're not pointing out like the elitist nature of 40% of the rankings. And with that absolute downer of a note, that's all for this bonus episode of the in-laws podcast. I did just spend like 45 minutes talking to myself in an empty bedroom, um, which was odd for me. Make sure to follow us on the Instagram at the in-laws pod. Make sure to follow us on our personal capacities on TikTok at Sophinlaw and at Brianna-in-law. We post full-length episodes every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern time. So make sure to follow us and rate the podcast through whichever streaming service you're listening to. And yeah, I mean, I'll talk to you guys next week. Hopefully with Soph. I really don't want to be alone again. All right. Bye.